How does a social enterprise solve the waste problems created by big global brands? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome back. It's episode 93. And thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Sorry about my croaky voice today. I'm absolutely gutted that I've come down with a cold for the first time since 2019, just when I was due to go to London tomorrow for a brilliant event put on by Michelle and Gemma, hosts of the excellent podcast, Can Marketing Save the Planet? And I was also catching up with two London-based sustainability friends. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Guillermo Maza, an environmental engineer and social entrepreneur. He's the co-founder and CEO of Refuse, a social enterprise based in Beirut, Lebanon, that offers community-based solid waste management services. Guillermo works in development initiatives and humanitarian response in the field of water, sanitation, hygiene and financial inclusion across Europe and Africa. His passion is combining equitable access to resources with ecosystem justice and restoration. Refuse has a mission to work with underserved communities, enabling them to sort recyclables and get rewarded for it. Refuse says, where most people see a pile of waste, we see opportunities to improve the lives of vulnerable people. Secondary raw materials have an unexploited value. Guillermo explains some of the issues faced by many people living in Beirut, where approximately one-third of the population are migrants, with many living in temporary, tented communities. Poverty, inequality and lack of government funds are big issues, and there's also a lack of basic infrastructure, including a reliable electricity supply. We hear how the refuse operation works, how they've expanded the range of materials they can recycle and what they do with it all. We also find out what motivates people to bring their recyclables along to the refuse stations. Surprisingly, for many people, it's not about the cash. So let's meet Guillermo Maza and I'll catch up with you afterwards with what I took away from our conversation. Guillermo, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. And can we start by asking you to explain what Refuse does? Absolutely. So Refuse is a social enterprise. And what we do is that we run recyclables collection points in Beirut, Lebanon. People are welcome to uh, bring us their sorted waste. They can uh, drop off 15 types of recyclables, plastics, metals, cooking oil, paper, whatever they uh, might have in their house or their shop. And we trade these materials with local industries and factories in Lebanon and uh, in the region, in the Middle East region. 
so that the value that we get can be can be shared back with those who contributed with their waste. So we have this cash for trash scheme that is an incentive for uh, those communities in which recycling is not yet uh, a common practice. Mm. And I gather it's not re- recycling is not really a common practice in most of uh, Beirut, and that creates a lot of issues that those of us in communities where you know recycling is pretty standard we probably can't envisage so could you explain some of those issues for the local people absolutely so uh in beirut waste is everywhere uh as soon as you land you start noticing that uh, landfills are uh, overfilling and there's no proper waste management system in place Uh, in some countries there's a management system that at least hides the problem so gets the materials out of the way and recyclables are collected or mixed waste at least is collected. The collection system in Beirut is failing since uh, a decade almost and due to political issues that date back to the civil war and the previous crisis but now the country is undergoing a new financial crisis and social and therefore a social socioeconomic crisis so uh, the situation is getting worse. Mm. It's getting worse in every neighborhood, but the most vulnerable neighborhoods are the uh, ones that are most exposed with less con- collection frequency, with uh, more uh, health problems related to mismanagement of solid waste. Mm. So what kind of health problems, you know, just unpack it a bit for those people who are struggling to imagine that sure. I know when we when we spoke before you um you know it was a or when we first met you were giving a presentation so there were some brilliant photographs from your local area that really brought it to life um so try and paint a picture in in words instead absolutely so waste easily piles up first issue is the smell it's everywhere it's very strong and particularly in summer it really really get stuck in your nose with this very acidic (laughs) note that is very annoying Uh, waste brings in several issues the first one is animals so we have insects breeding cockroaches flies mosquitoes whatever might be related to to that but also rats and cats and dogs and those animals that will eat the predators of these animals, since these animals are busy eating waste instead of uh, completing the the chain. And waste also contributes to floods in the municipality. So it clogs uh, public drainage systems, it clogs uh, roads and uh, gullies, whatever. So uh, it highly influences the risk of uh, floods in the area. It can pollute soils, uh, water sources, and so on in agricultural agricultural regions, but also in uh, uh, municipal sites. So there's a lot of uh, effects. One of the key issues in uh, uh, Beirut is also social tension. So uh, different communities producing waste and accusing each other of producing waste, of not managing properly um, waste, and the different presence of uh, migrant communities, refugee communities, host communities uh, with different roles in the waste management uh, value chain. So 
the presence of way speakers, informal collectors, the presence of uh, municipal actors, the, the tensions of uh, citizens and businesses. So it has a very important social component. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine how um, the you know the conversations go because we we all find it easier, don't we, um, to blame some um, target organization or group of people or whatever and and uh, insist it's it's all their fault, whatever the issue is, whether it's politics or whatever. And some organizations have tried to help, but unless it's unless there's a workable system. It doesn't necessarily make things better, does it? Absolutely. So there have been uh, several relief valves, several uh, humanitarian projects or international cooperation initiatives to support, particularly since the uh, beginning of the Syrian crisis with the inflow of a huge uh, number of refugees in the uh, country. But most projects have a very time limited uh, span. So, a very time limited span. So, uh, there has been the construction of uh, broad infrastructures throughout the country with, with uh, funding from large donors and agencies, but this never solved the issue because of the uh, complexity of the problem that couldn't be. Sold. For instance, the, the fact that different religious backgrounds do not allow mixing waste. So uh, the different cadastres of uh, the country wanted to have their own waste management scheme without the economy of scale of a waste management system. So Lebanon is a very tiny country. I'm, I'm from Italy and, it, and the size of Lebanon is the size of one of the smallest regions in, uh, in Italy. Though they have 20 cadastres that want to have their own waste management scheme. So wow. uh, there is no economy of scale. And we supported, international cooperation actors supported this uh, scheme to at least minimize the, the issues related to waste management. But these plants that we built never reached uh, full capacity and were never able to survive the, the granting. Mm. Uh, yeah, because it just couldn't be cost effective. Yeah. yeah. So when did you come to set uh, Refuse up? Um, how long ago was that? So I started uh, hanging out in Lebanon in 2019, and it was for my master's thesis on uh, solid waste management in protracted emergencies. And I stayed in a refugee camp for uh, four months, trying to understand how NGOs, how communities were responding to the uh, waste issue. And it was from a very... A different perspective. I was one of the beneficiaries. I was in a tent, living with the community in the middle of nowhere, not speaking one word of Arabic. So it was a very tough learning experience, but it really showed me uh, how uh, wrong sometimes our answers to the problems we see uh, are and how needed, how important it was to um, think of a solution that would incentivize people. So uh, not only be imposed as a solution to a problem that we all know, we all know that sorting and recycling waste is key. Mm. We all know that we can generate value out of that. We all know that there are very simple ways to sort the recyclables like bins, but we never designed such system in a, 
context where uh, there's no space in the house, where there's floods regularly in your tent, when there's no um, capacity to spread sorting stations in every small refugee camp that is located in the middle of nowhere in agricultural fields. So uh, the whole point was, how do we create a very small, tiny, simple infrastructure that uh, convinces people to bring recyclables, to drop them in recycling stations instead of collecting them at home, because there's no space, there's no chance. And how do we convince, how do we convince, how do we engage those who have other priorities which are much more important than waste? So health issues or legal problems or um, stressful jobs or yeah. <laughs> lack of jobs and uh, and so on to do something that is not a priority for them, not in a, a place that is the priority for them. So we came up with uh, this model of cash for trash as a way to reduce the key pressure that uh, these people had, which was financial distress, and also to help them uh, to hope, I mean, we didn't have uh, any confirmation on this, but to hope that we could use this money to uh, empower them and build solutions for settlements and refugee camps through the value of waste. Uh, the process was long. We started in 2019 with some research. We built, um, we, we did assessments everywhere we could on uh, the market value of recyclables, on uh, the feasibility of establishing permanent or non-permanent infrastructures on uh, the logistics uh, behind this scheme. And finally, in 2021, we decided to start, but not from a refugee camp. Uh, and we decided to start in a very, very dense neighborhood uh, in Beirut instead, which kind of was a refugee camp. It's an area where there's a, a very vibrant mix of communities. Uh, but it's a stable neighborhood, mm. dense, messy, um, extremely colorful and <laughs> nice. So that was 2021. And how many waste streams did you start off by offering recycling facilities for? So we started the collection of uh, 10 types of sorted materials. We started since the beginning with a very detailed mm -hmm. uh, process. So what, what, and kind we of actually, things, what kind of things did that include? Yeah. I mean, one is, uh, has multiple phases, like plastics. Mm -hmm. it's, we don't have one plastic bin, we have seven. So we have uh, transparent PET bottles, we have colored PET bottles or oily PET bottles. We have transparent LDPE, which is the nylon, the bags, the plastic bags that we daily use, uh, and then colored uh, bags. Then we have HDP, the high density plastics. So we have a, a very <laughs> detailed breakdown of uh, the plastics. Then we started to collect in paper and uh, cardboard and different types of metals. Uh, when we started developing, we started differentiating the types of metals and we had to stop the collection of glass because the market value and the logistics behind uh, glass collection were too tough for us. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I guess many of us would think that that would be the easy one. But then when it's small scale and you think about logistics and breakages and damage and all that kind of stuff, then. Indeed. Yeah. And risk for the workers yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you got going with that. And how did it how did it take off? You know, how did it resonate with people? Were people 
on board straight away or was there a bit of resistance? How did it go? So um, we, we started very small. We rented this uh, bakery that was abandoned and we transformed it into a drop-off station for recyclables, which is a shop and people could get in. And before we started any marketing campaign, we had people knocking the door with bags of recyclables. So word of mouth was really effective in the community. Uh, what we saw is that not everyone is happy of doing the effort. Uh, waste remains um, uh, a, a big issue for, for some people. It's not pleasant to, to, to collect recyclables at home and it's not pleasant to be seen transporting and dropping recyclables. It's perceived as something that only uh, people who are in very uh, dire financial distress would do. Yeah. Not everyone would be doing it for money. So, and then we started seeing more commitment of people with uh, different interests. Not everyone is coming for the cash reward. Uh, we have people coming because they do have an understanding of environmental problems. Uh, maybe not the full definition of climate change. Maybe yes. Maybe uh, a perception of what is um, uh, the impact of uh, uh, local ecosystems, not on uh, global schemes, but it, it really different purposes. And the, the other side that we never thought of is the willingness to improve the community. So a more social push. So uh, the capability of understanding that the system is collapsing, that there's no uh, proper governmental response in a, in a very harsh financial crisis. The government is not capable of improving the collection schemes. So people are seeing the worsening of the situation and they are fearing um, something that already happened, which was the waste crisis of 2015. So they want to commit and they uh, want to do the effort, not for environmental purposes, but for uh, living in a better neighborhood. Yeah, to make things better for the community. Yeah. So did things kind of grow steadily once you got going or... or... Did it suddenly take off? How how manageable was it? Uh, we had a lot of bottlenecks, <laughs> let's say. So uh, we started small and we had more and more people coming. We didn't have uh, equipment for processing. We didn't have a compactor for the recyclables. So we got overfilled after short, uh, a very short period. And uh, we started having issues with some uh, insects. And then we had... Uh, staff issues uh, i mean hiring is never easy and training the staff is never easy uh, we had <laughs> electricity problems the country is not uh, full-time connected to the grid so uh, sometimes we had electricity just for one or two hours per day and we could not uh, properly operate uh, and manage the volumes we were collecting so we were growing uh, let's say uh, steadily and we had a uh, this word of mouth was expanding and bringing us more people, but we also had several, several logistic issues that we had to uh, adjust and we had to tweak the system a bit several times to make sure it could work. So you've been learn learning fast through all those. Um, what what's is it? Um, it's a never-ending process. Is it Facebook that says you know um, fail fast and <laughs> and and. and um, <laughs> adapt or whatever they say um so kind of you know realize as fast as possible when something's not working and and evolve indeed, indeed. so you've had to do lots of that so yeah we had a we had a great advisor that uh told us 
if you want to start, fail first. So just do mm. it. Just go ahead. Just try it. And you will see what, are, what the problems are and you will adjust. So, um, yeah, that was it. So where, where are you up to now? What's the current situation? Is it still one recycling center or have you expanded to more? So we expanded to a second collection point in a very uh, similar community, not far from the one we were operating in. And so we have an increasing um, population served and we have a much, much bigger storage space where we will experiment some new uh, technical solutions for waste management, maybe not only compressing, also shredding recyclables to increase the market value and increase the chances to sell these materials to um, industries in need for uh, row, secondary row uh, products. So we will expand. And we have a third collection point uh, under construction, let's say we, are, we finalized agreements to let it start and we're gonna expand. So this was the goal for the year, having three collection points up and running and understanding also the complexity of managing more than one space for recyclables in different communities where you need different marketing messages. So you need to speak in different languages. We need to speak in Arabic, Armenian, in English, sometimes mm. uh, some communications in other uh, minor <laughs> languages, depending on the community we, uh, we serve. So uh, once we will be able to do that, we uh, aim to scale up fast and hopefully have 15, 20 collection points next year. Mm. So uh, the more you explain about it, the more complex it sounds. So now you have 15 okay. types of waste and um, two collection points and another one um, as work in progress, you know, in, in implementation. Are you, how, how, how does the cash for trash element of it work? Do people just turn up and you pay them there and then or... Is there a sort of electronic wallet system? How does that work? We do have an electronic wallet system. We have a software through which we check all the um, drop-offs. We measure everything we receive divided by fraction. So paper, plastics divided by type, we, we weigh everything as soon as people drop off. And we ask people to drop them off sorted. So we have a community that switched from zero sorting to knowing 15 types of materials, which is great. And um, we measure everything on their account and we give cash whenever they reach a certain uh, boundary. Right now it's uh, 50,000 Lebanese pounds. Uh, the, the market value changes fast because of the inflation, but uh, it sums up to, let's say, $1 and a half, $2 mm -hmm. uh, right now. Mm, okay. And in terms of selling the materials to industry, how yep. how how's that progressed? So we at, at the beginning we started with one buyer. It was a, a Palestinian NGO that uh, operates in uh, in some areas of Beirut, and that was already in touch with several buyers and in industry. So we were selling everything through them. Uh, now we are moving to different buyers. So we scouted uh, over. 30 different industries for uh, different materials and we are expanding the, the market. So we have a person working almost full-time on this, on the market assessment to negotiate prices and deals with uh, uh, buyers. The main complexity is that there are, there's a very strong fluctuation of prices that depends 
on uh, different factors, the distance, the availability of fuel for transportation, the, the cost of uh, labor, and the inflation rate in Lebanon, which is daily, daily uh, changing. So uh, we have to adjust regularly to that, but also the international fluctuation of prices. So the influence of COVID and the influence of the uh, lack of materials uh, related to worldwide crisis happening and we all know mm, yeah. the situation abroad. Yeah, so. exactly. And putting pressure on um, fuel costs and, and, and so on Indeed. as people compete Indeed. for fuel from different sources. So, yeah, I, mean, I can... It, it just It's just incredibly complicated, isn't it? And particularly because you're still at a, uh, a pretty, mu- pretty small scale, um, though with it sounds like lots of potential to scale out. And what's what's changed do you think in how how people are reacting to this since you started are people starting to feel more positive about it instead of seeing it as something that um they don't really want to be doing how, how's that changed we have very different perceptions from uh, i would say um some people do feel the a very strong commitment and they are proud of the effort they do and they keep pushing and reaching uh, other people to um, to let us expand, to let us collect more and let us have uh, a stronger impact on the community. And we also have those who uh, were doing it purely for cash who are saying that the effort is not properly rewarded. It's a stress, it's a struggle, it's a complex, very complex scheme. And it's not easy to drop the materials at our place. It's not easy to come within our opening times and we cannot operate 24 hours a day so it's not as easy as dropping everything into a bin so uh we have to improve the service as much as we can and maybe diversify the service as much as we can to make sure that we can integrate new um, minor solutions to uh, help those who feel that it's a struggle so how do we make the drop off process easier? How do we make the sorting process at home easier? How do we make it uh, easier to come by and uh, bring the materials to us knowing that things are heavy and things are uh, frequently produced? How do we support them? We, we don't have answers yet. We're just like collecting uh, the impressions and we will try to develop mm. as many solutions as we will be able to. Because even some of the high-tech solutions that are starting to be rolled out in Europe. So things like reverse vending machines to pay people to take back batteries and um, even to collect pre uh, reusable packaging like the loop system and so on. Um, those are obviously going to be expensive. And of course, if you can't guarantee 24-hour power supplies then that doesn't work either. You could have a fantastic bit of technology, but if there's no power, um, people can't use it. So I can imagine just how <laughs> how challenging yeah. it must be. And I think that this is one of the sides, that, one of the problems that you have. For sure, power, we don't have electricity, so we need a battery system, we need uh, waste, but also this uh, equipment is extremely costly mm. And the maintenance is extremely high. Mm. Any machine that has to deal with different inputs, which are uh, often dirty, greasy, oily, and have moving mechanical parts, will face 
will need to face high maintenance. Mm. Yeah. And if we import the machine from, uh, let's say, from Europe, then we would need to import spare parts from Europe. So we would have a very high dependency on this for these technological solutions. So uh, we don't think it's the case. Mm. Plus the, the learning curve <laughs> for these uh, machines is not so easy. And the, the materials they collect are very limited. So you can have a machine for batteries, you can have a machine for bottles, but you won't have a machine that is capable of doing what the human eye the human eye is doing, which is uh, collecting 15 types of recyclables in the same spot. Mm. Just and getting getting uh, quite good at them. being able to to even even know before you leave home um, exactly how these are going to be separated. The, so you've organized and there's the. Yeah. Yeah, there's a final issue, which is the human touch. With a human touch, people learn much faster. So while we sort, we can give tips, we can uh, share some feedback, uh, we can um, uh, help them learn more about the materials, we can suggest how to prevent producing these materials or how to switch from uh, non-recyclable uh, products that they deliver to us, like Tetra Pak. It's not mm. such a... Uh, an easy recyclable product it's extremely hard to process it and even in europe we struggle to uh, manage that properly so uh, in lebanon for us it's a very uh, significant issue so how do we avoid purchasing that and buying something else a vending machine a reverse vending machine will never be able to do that and the human touch is what makes people learn really fast when they come to our place mm. yeah i think i think that's really interesting and particularly to suddenly then think about the products that are difficult to recycle here, you know, in the in the U, well, here in, in Europe and and America, even things like industrially compostable packaging mostly can't be dealt with in the UK. There are a few industrially industrial composting plants around the country, but not many, and so people look at it and think maybe it can go on their own compost bin if they happen to have one otherwise it just ends up going in recycling to contaminate the recycling um or it ends up in in the waste bin so yeah i think it's it's one of these you know an, another reason why we need global extended producer responsibility it shouldn't be right that manufacturers can put products with packaging that can't be recycled into a country and just take no responsibility. Absolutely. And in a country where there is a huge financial crisis, packaging comes in a completely different way. Mm. It's very common to purchase uh, very small uh, products. So when you buy mm. nuts, you cannot afford to buy a kilo. You buy maybe 50 grams, which means that in pro in a pro if you do the proportions, you have a much higher production of waste. Yeah. Plus high-end communities can afford to purchase products with a certain type of packaging. Imagine, uh, imagine aluminum cans, uh, pretty comfortable to use, pretty easy to recycle, uh, quite a smooth process, but they're extremely costly. So if you need to sell uh, aluminum cans, you can only do it in a, in a certain community. In another community, you will go with Tetra Pak for the same product or plastic bottles. So the type of packaging really changes depending on the community. Mm. Yeah, interesting, and and just much more complicated than we would imagine from outside the the system. So, Guillermo, over the course of 
you know, starting your research project back in 2019 and getting to where you are now. What surprised you along the way? Oof, what didn't? <laughs> uh, what surprised us uh, along the way? So uh, one of the things that uh, really positively surprised me was uh, the fact that we have a vision that the team is also pushing forward. So we built a team uh, engaging people who uh, don't always have experience in the sector that we uh, work in, but that rapidly got engaged in this very long-term vision that we have for a more sustainable and more circular community uh, in which we operate. So this was uh, a very positive uh, surprise. We had uh, uh, another surprise that we didn't expect is that uh, we're not the only ones in, uh, in Beirut, in Lebanon. There's a lot of initiatives that are spreading fast to promote solutions. And uh, you can call it competition, be, being a startup within an enterprise, or you can call it finally having partners helping us advocate for the same uh, solution. So um, that's great. That surprised us, definitely. Uh, we, we are surrounded by actors who want to uh, push fast for a better waste management system, a better uh, waste prevention system, and in general, more structured uh, solutions towards uh, sustainable communities. Mm, that sounds encouraging. And I'm, I'm just thinking, um, you know, when we were talking about the extended producer responsibility and so on, Nestle, a couple of years ago, and I think it was in the Philippines, decided they were going to do net zero packaging. So the the way that worked was they worked out how much packaging of different types they were putting into the marketplace and they committed to pay for the collection of all of that to get it properly dealt with but it wasn't they weren't necessarily only collecting their own packaging they were collecting the equivalent volume by type of packaging and so the more brands that took that approach the more funding there would be for a, you know, a full, fully operational recycling system. Um, so Absolutely. maybe there's a this case for like... lobbying Nestle and some of the others to say, you know, you've done it here. Um, the next place you should be doing it is Beirut. We are very conflicted about this. Should we accept it or not? Should Nestle or all the other brands that are doing the same exact thing? There's a lot of uh, large scale polluters who are doing the same uh, or proposing the same solution should they keep producing this packaging or should they change the system instead mm. like those same aluminum cans couldn't be uh, couldn't they be um, bottles that are simply washed and refilled should we keep continuing with the same uh, system that keeps putting in reusable packaging that is actually designed to last much longer mm. than uh, the use that we do with that, so that, that the use that we need it for, or should we simply say that we compensate our uh, impact? So we actually had this problem when thinking about fundraising. So we need funds to expand. We need to fund. We need funds to sustain the costs. We definitely need uh, financial resources. Are we? 
accepting funds from those companies who are claiming that they will collect as much as they uh, produced. For us, it's still a no. Mm. So it's great that they want to collect, but we think they shouldn't produce it. Then mm, that's interesting. The beginning. So in the UK, the packaging waste regulations, there's a levy, and that levy is different according to the type of packaging. So the easier it is to recycle something like paper and card, they have a lower tax than the ones that are really difficult. So if you get those numbers right, you can encourage both switching to less difficult packaging in terms of recycling. And you can also start to level the playing field in term, in favour of reusable packaging. Um, Absolutely. So the political decisions behind are extremely important mm. because if not, if it's all um, left to the company's decision to promote uh, impact solutions because of visibility, because of uh, impact investors, because of... Uh, um, yeah, the good PR. Clients, yeah, yeah, yeah. We will never yeah. get anywhere. We need these kind of regulations, and we need them to be brave and strict, mm. particularly for those who have the capabilities of changing and who have the the funds to change and who built huge marketing campaigns to uh, let us think that we need such products when we actually don't. Mm. So, um, definitely, extended producer responsibility is needed, and we really need to make sure that the large companies will be the ones promoting research and investing in their own to find solutions. Mm. Taxation is one of the systems, but we should also be braver and sometimes ban. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. Uh, really yeah. Particularly when there's a, you know, um, a workable, reusable system, um, because, you know, there are, there are plenty now starting up. Absolutely. So again, looking back on, on the three years so far, what would be your number one lesson learned? Lessons learned, build a team. Uh, we didn't build a product. We built a, te we built a team. So uh, whatever happens now, we have a team of, let's say, visionary people who decided to dedicate a lot of their time and a lot of their, their energy and knowledge to a problem. We fell in love with the problem. We really want to fix uh, solid waste management issues in dense, vulnerable communities. Refuse is an answer. It's one of the answers, but we need this team to keep evolving Refuse. And we don't want Refuse to be the final solution. So the Cash for Trust team is amazing for first step, but we need to evolve uh, to, to work on prevention and new solutions. So really make sure that you have the team that is passionate, that keeps learning from uh, different sources, because with the team, you can develop new solutions very fast. Now we have a company, now we have a system, now we have a structure. Give us a new idea and we are ready to work on it. Sounds amazing. That was the best lesson learned. You're passionate about the circular economy beyond just packaging and, and um, other difficult to recycle items. When you're talking to people about the circular economy, is there a favorite example that you like to share? A favorite example, um, I should think of that. So I think that my uh, my goal, my personal goal, is trying to make people realize how wrong the system of ownership we have and how important it is to propose sharing solutions. 
So this capitalistic scheme that led to a very non-circular system brought us to think that if we own things, it's better, it's easier, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's uh, uh, more comfortable. But there are so many communities that don't have access to what we're used to, or so many communities in which uh, access is restricted by, um, I don't know, logistics or uh, procurement uh, problems. So we should switch to sharing solutions instead. So one of the best examples that I would uh, bring to the table is uh, a normal library. We don't need to have books on our shelves forever. It's very nice to have the book you read, but you really don't need it. So why should we have them there uh, all the time? And if we can do it with books, why can't we do it with everything else we own? So there are so many great examples of library, libraries of things, and they can be the solutions to uh, a lot of our storage cost and sharing problems. So I really think that this should spread everywhere from high-end communities to very low-end communities. Um, I can cite two examples. There's one in, uh, in Bologna, in Italy, it's called uh, Leila, and it's purely a library of things. You can rent things to go hiking, you can rent things to cook, you can rent electrical equi equipment that you would not uh, need full-time, like a drill. We use it maybe once per year, twice. I mean, I'm a bit of a handy person, so I use it often, but <laughs> I really don't need it every single day. So I could borrow it. And that's a great place where you can go and uh, rent out whatever you might need. And another very nice solution is called, uh, solution is called Tulu. And what they do is that they uh, create uh, sort of shelves with a very easy, uh, uh, app that allows you to uh, unlock these shelves and rent some things like a very cool, very powerful vacuum, uh, vacuum cleaner, what's the name? <laughs> That's it. So uh, a great vacuum cleaner and you don't need that full time and maybe you have your own and it's a bit old and sometimes you need to do something uh, bigger, you need to clean better and you can rent it out for one hour, not more than that. And they do, what they do is that they put these systems into large buildings or in, into places where people concentrate so uh, that there can be the um, food processing machine that you would always wanted to have and you would use once per year. So it's really great that they found this very simple, very uh, uh, minimal scheme to rent out things inside your building, so extremely accessible at affordable cost. What I really love is that we, if we learn what sharing means, it means we also focus on keeping, taking very good care of the things we own and only purchasing those things that will have a very long life. So those who will put uh, pots in the shelves will not put cheap pots that will need to be replaced every now and then. They will purchase much better quality equipment and pots and drills and so on. So... We also push for uh, the production of more uh, of better quality items and uh, repairable items and washable items and, and so on. So we also stop the issue of producing cheap so that everyone can access. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Cheap stuff that is yeah. really a false economy. You know, you think it, you think it's cheap and then you find out it's only lasted um, you know, a quarter of the time of the slightly Absolutely. more expensive one. Yeah, thank you. So, Guillermo, 
Um, how can people find out more about Refuse and get in touch? So you can check our uh, Instagram page, uh, refuse.lebanon. You can check our website, uh, www.refuse.eco. And you can reach out on Facebook, on LinkedIn. It's very easy. If you just look for Refuse and that Lebanon next to it, Refuse should come up. So uh, happy to have your impressions uh, through our channels. Thank you. Yes. So I'll, I'll share all those links in the show notes and then really look forward to seeing what happens next. It sounds like you've got an amazing team with lots of energy and now an engaged community and some of the just the, the complexity of the challenges that you're trying to solve across different cultural groups and the different types of waste and yeah it's just mind-blowing but it sounds like you've made an amazing amount of progress so far so thank i'm sure you'll go from strength to strength over the next few years thank you very much thanks a lot thanks to you i was struck by how overwhelmingly complex the multiple challenges faced by the community in beirut feel not just the lack of waste collection and recycling infrastructure there are multiple languages and cultural issues with how waste is perceived most people don't have access to transport, there isn't a reliable electricity supply, and much more. It really does fit the criteria for a wicked problem. I can imagine that many other countries face similar challenges, and yet the multinational corporations, in particular big food, cleaning and personal care brands, all sell their products in packaging that they know can't be recycled in that country and yet they're not taking responsibility for funding the collection. They might allocate some corporate social responsibility budget to help in organise or promote litter picks and gain positive PR from that. But that's not taking full responsibility for what they've done in the pursuit of profit. We're generally aware of the environmental problems caused by packaging waste that isn't recycled. But Guillermo painted a picture of what that really means when he described the smell, the vermin and disease, and then the blockage of drains and flood risk. All of that then leads to social tensions and extra stress for the community. We heard about the increasing number of, of initiatives in Beirut that are trying to do work in this area, and I liked that Guillermo sees these as potential partners, not as competitors. Refuse says power grows with scale. It's when friends, neighbours and local organisations cooperate that they can use its value to fund community initiatives and solve their most pressing issues. And by the way, Nestle has achieved net plastic neutrality in the Philippines back in 2020. Nestle defines plastic neutrality as meaning that Nestle Philippines is recovering the same amount of plastic generated from its packaging through waste management. By spring 2021, with the help of its partners, Nestle Philippines had collected and processed 18,000 metric tonnes of plastic waste. It's worth noting that that's used to create energy for cement manufacture, not recycled into new plastics. Here at Rethink, I'm making tiny breakthroughs with my next book. My revised structure feels much better from the reader's perspective, but means that every chapter I've written so far has to be reworked substantially, with quite a lot of content that'll have to be killed off, or at least cryogenically frozen. 
So that's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, Guillermo Maza, founder of Refuse Eco, and thank you for listening. Thanks also to the team at Essex, University of Trento, for making this episode possible. As always, you can find out more, follow Refuse on social media, and check out the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.